Section 17 of Roxana by Daniel Defoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. I told the gentleman I had perhaps different notions of matrimony from what the received custom had given us of it, but I thought a woman was a free agent as well as a man, and was born free and, could she manage herself suitably, might enjoy that liberty to as much purpose as the men do. That the laws of matrimony were indeed otherwise, and mankind at this time acted quite upon other principles, and those such that a woman gave herself entirely away from herself in marriage, and capitulated, only to be, at best, but an upper servant from the time she took the man she was no better or worse than the servant among the Israelites, who had his ears bored, that is, nailed to the doorpost, who by that act gave himself up to be a servant during life, that the very nature of the marriage contract was in short nothing but giving up liberty, estate, authority, and everything to the man. The woman was indeed a mere woman ever after that is to say, slave. He replied that, though in some respects it was as I had said, yet I ought to consider that as an equivalent to this, the man had all the care of things devolved upon him. The weight of business lay upon his shoulders, and as he had the trust, so he had the toil of life upon him. His was the labour, Here's the anxiety of living, that the women had nothing to do but to eat the fat and drink the sweet, to sit still and look around her, be waited on, made much of, be served, loved, and made easy, especially if the husband acted as became him, that in general the labour of the man was appointed to make the woman live quiet and unconcerned in the world that they had the name of subjection without the thing, and if in inferior families they had the drudgery of the house and care of the provisions upon them, yet they had indeed much the easier part, for in general the women had only the care of managing, that is, spending what the husbands get, and that a woman had the name of subjection indeed, but that they generally commanded not the men only, but all they had managed all for themselves, and where the man did his duty, the woman's life was all ease and tranquillity, and that she had nothing to do but to be easy, and to make all that were about her both easy and merry. I returned that while a woman was single, she was a masculine in her politic capacity, and that she had then the full command of what she had, and the full direction of what she did that she was a man in her separate capacity, to all intents and purposes, that a man could be so to himself, that she was controlled by none, because accountable to none, and was in subjection to none. So I sang these two lines. Oh, tis pleasant to be free, the sweetest miss in liberty. I added that whoever the woman was that had an estate, and would give it up to be the slave of a great man. That woman was a fool, 
and must be fit for nothing but a beggar, that it was my opinion a woman was as fit to govern and enjoy her own estate without a man as a man was without a woman, and that if she had a mind to gratify herself as to sexes, she might entertain a man as a man does a mistress, that while she was thus single, she was her own and if she gave away that power, she merited to be as miserable as it was possible that any creature could be. All he could say could not answer the force of this as to argument, only this, that the other way was the ordinary method the world was guided by, that he had reason to expect I should be content with that which all the world was contented with, that he was of the opinion that a sincere affection between a man and his wife answered all the objections that I had made about the being a slave, a servant, and the like, and where there was a mutual love there could be no bondage, but that there was but one interest, one aim, one desire, and all conspired to make both very happy. Ay, said I, that is the thing I complain of. The pretense of affection takes from a woman everything that can be called herself. She is to have no interest, no aim, no view, but all is the interest, aim, and view of the husband. She is to be the passive creature you spoke of, said I. She is to lead a life of perfect indolence, and living by faith, not in God, but in her husband. She sinks or swims, as he is either fool or wise man, unhappy or prosperous, in the middle of what she thinks is her happiness and prosperity, she is engulfed in misery and beggary, which she had not the least notice, knowledge, or suspicion of. How often have I seen a woman living in all the splendour that a plentiful fortune ought to allow her? with her coaches and equipages, but family and rich furniture, her attendants and friends, her visitors and good company all about her to-day. To-morrow, surprised with a disaster, turned out of all by a commission of bankrupt, stripped to the clothes on her back, her jointure, suppose she had it, is sacrificed to the creditors, so long as her husband lived, and she turned into the street, left to live on the charity of her friends, if she has any, or follow the monarch, her husband, into the mint, and live there on the wreck of his fortunes, till he is forced to run away from her even there, and then she sees her children starve, herself miserable, breaks her heart, and cries herself to death. This, says I, is the estate of many a lady as it has, ten thousand pounds to her portion. He did not know how feelingly I spoke this, and what extremities I had gone through of this kind, how near I was to the very last article above, vis-à-vis -vis crying myself to death, and how I really starved for almost two years together. But he shook his head, and said, Where had I lived, and what dreadful families had I lived among, that had frighted me to such terrible apprehensions of things, that these things indeed might happen? where men run into hazardous things in trade, and without prudence or due consideration, launched their fortunes in a degree beyond their strength, grasping at adventures beyond their stocks, and the like. But that, as he was stated in the world, if I would embark with him, he had a fortune equal with mine, that 
together we should have no occasion of engaging in business any more, but that in any part of the world where I had a mind to live, whether England, France, Holland, or where I would, we might settle, live as happily as the world could make any one live, that if I desired the management of our estate when we put together, if I would not trust him with mine, he would trust me with his, that he would be upon one bottom, and I should steer. Ay, says I, you'll allow me to steer, that is, hold the helm, but shall con the ship, as they call it, that is, as at sea, a boy serves to stand at the helm, but he that gives him the orders is pilot. He laughed at my simile. No, says he, you shall be pilot then, you shall con the ship. Ay, says I, as long as you please, but you can take the helm out of my hand when you please, and bid me go spin. It is not you, says I, that I suspect, but the laws of matrimony puts the power into your hands, bids you do it, commands you to command, and binds me, forsooth, to obey. You that are now upon even terms with me, and I with you, says I, are the next hour set upon the throne, and the humble wife placed at your footstool, all the rest, all that you call oneness of interest, mutual affection, and the like, is courtesy and kindness then, and a woman is indeed infinitely obliged where she meets with it, but can't help herself where it fails. Well, he did not give it over yet, but came to the serious part, and there he thought he should be too many for me. He first hinted that marriage was decreed by heaven, that it was the fixed state of life which God had appointed for man's felicity, and for establishing a legal posterity, that there could be no legal claim of estates by inheritance, but by children born in wedlock, that all the rest was sunk under scandal and illegitimacy, and very well he talked about that subject indeed. But it would not do. I took him short there. Look you, sir, said I, you have an advantage of me there, indeed, in my particular case. But it would not be generous to make use of it. I readily grant that it were better for me to have married you than to admit you to the liberty I have given you. But as I could not reconcile my judgment to marry for the reasons above, and had kindness enough for you, and obligation too much on me to resist you, I suffered your rudeness, and gave up my virtue. But I have two things before me to heal up that breach of honour, without that desperate one of marriage and those are repentance for what is past, and putting end to it for time to come. He seemed to be concerned to think that I should take him in that manner. He assured me that I misunderstood him, that he had more manners as well as more kindness for me, and more justice than to reproach me with what he had been the aggressor in, and that surprised me into, that what he spoke referred to my words above, that the woman, if she thought fit, might entertain a man, as a man did a mistress, and that I seemed to mention that way of living as justifiable, and setting it as a lawful thing, and in the place of matrimony. Well, we strained some compliments upon those points, not worth repeating, and I added, I supposed, when he got to bed to me, he thought himself sure of me. And indeed, in the ordinary course of things, after he had lain with me, he ought to think so. But that, upon the same foot of argument which I had discoursed with him upon, it was just the contrary. 
and when a woman had been weak enough to yield up the last point before wedlock, it would be adding one weakness to another to take the man afterwards, to pin down the shame of it upon herself all the days of her life, and bind herself to live all her time with the only man that could upbraid her with it, that in yielding at first she must be a fool, but to take the man as to be sure to be called a fool, that to resist a man is to act with courage and vigour, and to cast off the reproach which in the course of things drops out of knowledge and dies. The man goes one way and the woman another, as fate and the circumstances of living direct, and if they keep one another's counsel, the folly is heard no more of. But to take the man, says I, is the most preposterous thing in nature. Saving your presence is to befoul one's self and live always in the smell of it. No, no, added I. After a man has lain with me as a mistress, he ought never to lie with me as a wife. That's not only preserving the crime in memory, but it is recording it in the family. If the woman marries the man afterwards, she bears the reproach of it to the last hour. If her husband is not a man of a hundred thousand, he some time or other upbraids her with it. If he has children, they fail not one way or other to hear of it. If the children are virtuous, they do their mother the justice to hate her for it. If they are wicked, they give her the mortification of doing the like, and giving her for the example. On the other hand, if the man and the woman part, there is an end of the crime an end of the clamour. Time wears out the memory of it. Or a woman may remove but a few streets. She soon outlives it, and hears no more of it. He was confounded at this discourse, and told me he could not say but I was right in the main, that as to that part relating to managing estates, it was arguing a la cavaliere, was in some sense right, if the women were able to carry it on so, but that in general the sex were not capable of it, their heads were not turned for it, and they had better choose a person capable and honest, that knew how to do them justice as women, as well as to love them, and that then the trouble was all taken off their hands. I told him it was a dear way of purchasing their ease, for very often when the trouble was taken off their hands, so was their money too and that I thought it was far safer for the sex not to be afraid of the trouble, but to be really afraid of their money, that if nobody was trusted, nobody would be deceived, and the staff in their own hands was the best security in the world. He replied that I had started a new thing in the world, that, however, I might support it by subtle reasoning, yet it was a way of arguing that was contrary to the general practice, and that, he confessed, much disappointed in it, that had he known I would have made such a use of it, he would never have attempted what he did, which he had no wicked design in, resolving to make me reparation, and that he was very sorry he had been so unhappy, that he was very sure he should never upbraid me with it hereafter, and had so good an opinion of me as to believe I did not suspect him. But seeing I was positive in refusing him, notwithstanding what had passed. He had nothing to do but secure me from reproach by going back again to Paris, and so 
according to my own way of arguing, and might die out of memory, and I might never meet with it again to my disadvantage. I was not pleased with this part at all, for I had no mind to let him go neither, and yet I had no mind to give him such hold of me as he would have had, and thus I was in a kind of suspense, irresolute and doubtful what course to take. I was in the house with him, as I have observed, and I saw evidently that he was preparing to go back to Paris, and particularly I found he was remitting money to Paris, which was, as I understood afterwards, to pay for some wines which he had given order to have brought for him at Troyes in Champagne, and he knew not what course to take, and besides that I was very loath to part with him, I found also that I was with child by him which is what I had not told him of, and sometimes I thought not to tell him of it at all, but I was in a strange place, and had no acquaintance, though I had a great deal of substance, which indeed, having no friends, there was the more dangerous to me. This obliged me to take him one morning, when I saw him, as I thought, a little anxious about his going, and irresolute. Says I to him, I fancy you can hardly find your heart to leave me now. The more unkind is it in you, said he, severely unkind, to refuse a man that knows not how to part with you. I am so far from being unkind to you, said I, that I will go over all the world with you, if you desire me to, except to Paris, where you know I can't go. It is a pity so much love, said he, on both sides should ever separate. Why then, said I, do you go away from me? Because, said he, you won't take me. But if I won't take you, said I, you may take me anywhere but to Paris. He was very loath to go anywhere, he said, without me, but he must go to Paris or the East Indies. I told him I did not use to court, but I durst venture myself to the East Indies with him, if there was a necessity of his going. He told me, God be thanked, he was in no necessity of going anywhere, but that he had a tempting invitation to go to the Indies. I answered I would say nothing to that, but that I desired he would go anywhere but to Paris, because there he knew I must not go. He said he had no remedy but to go where I could not go, for he could not bear to see me if he must not have me. I told him that was the unkindest thing he could say of me that I ought to take it very ill, seeing I knew how very well to oblige him to stay, without yielding to what he knew I could not yield to. This amazed him, and he told me I was pleased to be mysterious, but that he was sure it was in nobody's power to hinder him going, if he resolved upon it, except me, who had influence enough upon him to make him do anything. Yes, I told him I could hinder him, because I knew... He could no more do an unkind thing by me than he could do an unjust one, and to put him out of his pain I told him I was a child. He came to me, and taking me in his arms, and kissing me a thousand times, almost said, Why would I be so unkind not to tell him that before? I told him it was hard that to have him stay, I should be forced to do as criminal do to avoid the gallows, plead my belly and that I thought I had given him testimonies enough of an affection equal to that of a wife, if I had not only lain with him, been with child by him, shown myself unwilling to part with him, but 
offered to go to the East Indies with him, and except one thing that I could not grant, what could he ask more? He stood mute a good while, but afterwards told me he had a great deal more to say, if I could assure him that I would not take ill whatever freedom he might use with me in his discourse. I told him he might use any freedom in words with me, for a woman who had given leave to such other freedoms as I had done, had left herself no room to take anything ill, let it be what it would. Why then, he said, I hope you believe, madam, I was born a Christian, and that I have some sense of sacred things upon my mind. When I first broke in upon our own virtue, and assaulted yours, when I surprised, and as it were forced you to that which neither you intended or designed but a few hours before, it was upon the presumption that you would certainly marry me, if once I could go that length with you, it was with an honest resolution to make you my wife. But I have been surprised with such a denial that no woman in such circumstances ever gave to a man, for certainly it was never known that any woman refused to marry a man that had first lain with her, much less a man that had gotten her with child. But you go upon different notions from all the world and though you reason upon it so strongly that a man knows hardly what to answer, yet I must own there is something in it shocking to nature, and something very unkind to yourself, above all, it's unkind to the child that is yet unborn, who, if we marry, will come into the world with advantage enough, but if not, is ruined before it is born, must bear the eternal reproach what it is not guilty of, must be branded from its cradle with a mark of infamy, be loaded with the crimes and follies of its parents, and suffer for sins that it never committed. This I take to be very hard, and indeed cruel to the poor infant not yet born, who you cannot think of with any patience, if you have the common affection of a mother, and not do that for it which should at once place it on a level with the rest of the world and not leave it to curse its parents, what also we ought to be ashamed of. I cannot, therefore, says he, but beg and entreat you, as you are a Christian and a mother, not to let the innocent lamb you go with be ruined before it is born, and leave it to curse and reproach us hereafter for what may be so easily avoided. Then, dear madam, said he, with a world of tenderness, and I thought I saw tears in his eyes, allow me to repeat it as i am a christian and consequently i do not allow what i have rashly and without due consideration done i say i do not approve of it as lawful and therefore though i did with the view i have mentioned one unjustifiable action i cannot say that i could satisfy myself to live in a continual practice of what in judgment we must both condemn and though I love you above all the women in the world, and I have done enough to convince you of it by resolving to marry you after what has passed between us, and by offering to quit all pretensions to any part of your estate, so that I should, as it were, take a wife after I had lain with her, and without a farthing portion, which, as my circumstances are, I need not do, I say, notwithstanding my affection to you, which is inexpressible, that I cannot give up soul as well as body interest of this world and the hopes of another, and you cannot call this my disrespect to you. 
ever in a man in the world was truly valuable for the strictest honesty of intention, this was the man, and if ever woman in her senses rejected a man of merit on so trivial and frivolous a pretense, I was the woman. But surely it was the most preposterous thing that ever woman did. He would have taken me as a wife, but would not entertain me as a whore. Was ever woman angry with any gentleman on that head? And was ever woman so stupid to choose to be a whore? Where she might have been an honest wife. But infatuations are next to being possessed of the devil. I was inflexible, and pretended to argue upon the point of a woman's liberty as before, but he took me short with more warmth than he had yet used with me, though with the utmost respect replied, Dear madam, you argue for liberty, at the same time that you restrain yourself from that liberty which God and nature has directed you to take, and to supply the deficiency, propose a vicious liberty, which is neither honourable or religious, will you propose liberty at the expense of modesty? I returned that he mistook me. I did not propose it. I only said that those that could not be content without concerning the sexes in that affair might do so indeed might entertain a man as men do a mistress, if they thought fit. But he did not hear me say I would do so, and though by what had passed he might well censure me in that part, yet he should find for the future that I should freely converse with him without any inclination that way. He told me he could not promise that for himself, and thought he ought not to trust himself with the opportunity for that, as he had failed already, he was loath to lead himself into the temptation of offending again, and that this was the true reason for his resolving to go back to Paris, not that he could willingly leave me, and would be very far from wanting my invitation, but if he could not stay upon terms that became him, either as an honest man or a Christian, what could he do? And he hoped, he said, I could not blame him that he was unwilling anything that he was to call him father should upbraid him with leaving him in the world to be called bastard, adding that he was astonished to think how I could satisfy myself to be so cruel to an innocent infant, yet not yet born, professed he could neither bear the thoughts of it, much less bear to see it, and hoped I would not take it ill that he could not stay to see me delivered for that very reason. I saw he spoke this with a disturbed mind, and that it was with some difficulty that he restrained his passion. So I declined any farther discourse upon it, only said I hoped he would consider of it. Madame, says he, do not bid me consider, it is for you to consider. With that he went out of the room in a strange kind of confusion, as was easy to be seen in his countenance. If I had not been one of the foolishest, as well as the wickedest creatures upon earth, I could never have acted thus. I had one of the honestest, completest gentlemen upon earth at my hand. He had in one sense saved my life, but he had saved that life from ruin in a most remarkable manner. He loved me even to destruction, but had come from Paris to Rotterdam on purpose to seek me. He had offered me marriage even after I was with child by him, and had offered to quit all his pretensions to my estate and give it up to my own management, having a plentiful estate of his own, 
here i might have settled myself out of the reach even of disaster itself his estate and mine would have purchased even then above two thousand pounds a year and i might have lived like a queen nay far more happy than a queen and which was above all i had now an opportunity to have quitted a life of crime and debauchery which i had been given up to for several years and to have sat down quiet and plenty in honour and to have set myself apart for the great work which i have since seen so much necessity of and occasion for i mean that of repentance my measure of wickedness was not yet full. I continued obstinate against matrimony, and yet I could not bear the thoughts of his going away. As to the child, I was not very anxious about it. I told him I would promise him it should never come to him to upbraid him with his being illegitimate, that if it was a boy, I would breed it up like the son of a gentleman, and use it well for his sake. And after a little more such talk as this, and seeing him resolved to go, retired but could not help letting him see the tears run down my cheeks he came to me and kissed me entreated me conjured me by the kindness he had shown me in my distress by the justice he had done me in my bills and money affairs by the respect which made him refuse a thousand pistoles from me for his expenses with that traitor the jew by the pledge of our misfortune so he called it which i carried with me by all that the sincerest affection could propose to do, that I would not drive him away. But it would not do. I was stupid and senseless, deaf to all his importunities, and continued so to the last. So we parted, only desiring me to promise that I would write him word when I was delivered, and how he might give me an answer this i engaged my word i would do and upon his desiring to be informed which way i intended to dispose myself i told him i resolved to go directly to england and to london where i proposed to lie in but since he resolved to leave me i told him i supposed it would be of no consequence to him what became of me end of section seventeen